I can be a bit of a literary slut where I read everybody and like a lot of things. Yeah. You are highly yeah. quotable. Kate. Like <laughs> no. I can't wait for the sound bites from this episode. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey y'all, I'm Donnie Walton. I'm Deisha Philia. Welcome to the Ursa Podcast, a celebration of all things short fiction. On this podcast, we interview authors, discuss collections and stories we love, and shine a light on new writers and those who never got their due. And at Ursa, we're not just talk, we're publishers too. Over at ursastory.com, we've created a new home for short fiction from some of today's most thrilling writers, as well as emerging voices, with stories you can read on your phone and audio stories that you can listen to right here in your favorite podcast app. We're doing all of this with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or by going to ursastory.com slash join. So today we are thrilled to be in conversation with Chelsea T. Hicks, whose debut collection, A Calm and Normal Heart, published June 21st by Unnamed Press, contains 12 astonishing stories that Brandon Hobson has called, quote, full of quiet truths and wry soulful secrets. And I also have to say, I agree with Kali Fajardo-Anstein, author of Sabrina and Karina, who has said this collection is, quote, unlike anything I've read before. She continues at the intersection of tradition and technology, past and present. These vivid and absorbing Native characters fill the pages of this extraordinary debut with tenderness and humor. And a little more about today's guest. Chelsea T. Hicks is a model, author, and current Tulsa Artist Fellow. She is a Native Arts and Cultures Foundation 2021 Lift Awardee, and her writing has been published in McSweeney's, Yellow Medicine Review, the LA Review of Books, Indian Country Today, The Believer, The Audacity, The Paris Review, and elsewhere. And this is very exciting. She is planning an Indigenous Language Creative Writing Conference for November 2022 in Tulsa, funded by an Interchange Art Grant. Chelsea, welcome to the Ursa podcast. Thank you so much. You guys are taking my breath away. (laughs) (laughs) Back at you, right back at you. Back at you. And for those who haven't read the book, immediately after the title page of this collection, before the table of contents and, and the author's note, there is a poem in Wajaje Ia, the language of the Wajaje people, and then it appears in English. And Chelsea, we would love to hear it in the original and in translation. Would you read that for us? Yes, I'd be delighted. Okay. Nanse waspe wita hoankishte data oju flonka. Vigahape, Tsehompe, Okta, Skagala, Tsehompe, Eko, Minkshe, Hoin Kishki, Bretzi, Wita, Bacheno, Ilape, Eno, Kako, Dota, Zani, Dota, Hudapa, Kakonta, Walushonta, Aji, Nanse, Waspe, Hoin Kietsi, Kan, Atsi, here. My functional heart, where are you? What turned you into an empty glass? Is it that I love the spiders and am like one? Wherever I go, making my house? I have only to wait, and all things come to me, and therein break their necks. But a calm and normal heart. Where does that come from? Thank you. And so we know that A Calm and Normal Heart is the title of the collection. Can you talk a bit about how this poem sets the table for the collection? Yes. Um, So that phrase, nonce waspe, it can mean like um, a strong heart or a calm and normal heart. And it can also mean, refer to a band of Wajaje people called Heart Stays. Mm. And I think I'm really interested in the collection in this question of who stayed home and who left and why, how did that create divisions? Where is home? What is home? And what is a person trying to make a home have to do to achieve that? And is there a type of a heartlessness in setting boundaries and and growing um, that changes oneself from the training of home? So I think that this poem sets up some of those questions that I try to investigate throughout the stories. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to get specifically, we're going to get really deep and try not to do too many spoilers because <laughs> I know a lot of people are still going to be so curious about the collection after listening to this. But I'd love to know a little bit more about you, Chelsea, and your personal journey to becoming a storyteller. Um, when did you first start writing stories? And when did you know that this was the right path for you? The first short story that I wrote, I was in a workshop at the University of Virginia. And prior to that, I had written poems, you know, like a lot of teenagers trying just to process one's emotions. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I was really nervous uh, to write a short story, but I really loved reading. And that had kind of, you know, been my refuge as like a teen. Um, my dad ran a construction business and he wanted to instill work ethic in us. So one of the ways I could get out of working was by reading because he really, you know, glorified the intellectual mind. So I just was like an addictive reader. And I thought, I'll try to write a story. But, you know, it took me a really long time before I felt like I found anything close to my voice because the kind of ideal of short stories that I experienced in workshops was very subtle and I think white, very like not Mm. much happens. It's very delicate. And I mean, I had taken this class with Anne Beattie. I remember taking class with Anne Beattie and reading like a lot of Raymond Carver. And I just, I always felt like I'm well read maybe in the so-called canon, but like for me to do what I needed to do to have my voice out there, I feel like I had to kind of come to my wits end in trying to assimilate over like about 12 years. And it wasn't until I had written a novel and had an agent shopping that novel around and got feedback from different uh, publishers saying, this just doesn't seem like a first book. And I took it to mean like, your subject matter is too specific. It's not recognizable enough as native. And Mm -hmm. you need to open up this niche of literature first before we can recognize you. And I thought, okay, it's, I guess it's just time for me to say what I want to say very directly and forget all of this that I'm trying to supposedly, you know, assimilate toward. Wow. That leads really beautifully, actually, into the next question that I have, because you studied creative writing. I mean, you have a couple different masters. You have Mm -hmm. a master's in creative writing from both UC Davis. And what I'm very interested in is your studies at the Institute of American Indian Arts, because I'm a graduate of Iowa and I'm very grateful Mm. for everything I learned there. But I would I often say to my friends, like, I would love if there were an HBCU that had an MFA program in creative writing, because I do wonder what writing in the complete context of my community, how that would enrich my writing or inform my writing. And so I'm wondering how how it affected you, how Mm -hmm. writing in the total context of Indigenous community um, helped you to develop your your voice and your stories. Yeah, it, it was something I needed sorely because I think growing up mainly away from the Osage Nation in Southern Virginia and Staying sometimes with my eco, or as we call grandma in, in Bartlesville, sort of like a res border town, I had enough cultural and tribal connection to not feel like somebody could tell me I didn't belong or that I was an outsider, but also enough disconnection that I was still treated sort of like, oh, you're not from here when I was home in, in the Osage. And so when I went to IAIA, I did so because I think three or four people were encouraging me to. One, a mentor of mine at UC Davis who also taught at IAIA, Pam Houston, and she introduced me to Tommy Orange and Therese Myatt. And they were just graduating then. And Tommy encouraged me to go there as well as uh, a cousin, or not a cousin, but like a culturally like a cousin, a friend, Ruby Hanson Murray. So these these people were all urging me, go there, go, go to the Institute of American Indian Arts. And I was kind of like, why? But I mean, I, I said to myself, well, I guess why not? Let's see what Mm -hmm. happens. Um, Mm -hmm. so I remember being there, there would be these charged kind of political, like caucus, like discussions around things like indigenous language, native 
diaspora and reservation politics around things like representation. And so that was exciting to me, you know, intellectually to have basically these like debates going on. And then uh, writers like Sherwin Bitsui, who writes in Diné Bizarre and Navajo language. I remember this uh, craft talk that he gave about finding ways to embed your cultural lessons within the, f- the form of poems or of, of writing. And it was so impactful to have a sense of Native community and that I felt like writers there really supported each other, wanted each other to succeed. It felt like a family. And I made the intentional decision to choose mentors who were all Native women because my dad is my Native parent. And so I felt like since my my eco had passed away that that was something I was lacking and I just needed mentorship by Native women. And that program really provided that in a way that felt more overall like human and familial to me even than intellectual. Um, So it was just a really healing experience. It challenged me to think about what does it mean to write something that help that, you know, has my community's best interests at heart and is still recognizably Native in a way that can command American attention. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I, you know, I've had the experience of being in workshops with other Black women and even other women of of color. And there is sort of a freeing there. And there's a support to write toward your intended audience and to not like fall into the trap of over explaining or mm-hmm. any of that. And it's just a, a really, a really beautiful and freeing thing. So what an amazing experience that must have been. And so Chelsea, can you take us from that those experiences um, and sort of further along the journey to where we are now with the publication of your collection? I guess there was kind of a pivot point in my last semester at IAIA. I had been working on this novel. It was called Eco. It was obviously about my grandma, which I'm starting to feel like is like a native cliche. <laughs> like anybody beginning a poem with my grandmother. <laughs> I um, We get that too. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, I'm actually the new thing I'm working on starts with a grandmother. So yes. <laughs> you gotta love it. It's the bedrock of the community. It's it really on of culture. It's our ancestors. But I was just noticing that the other day because I'm working on this zine of like Wajaji reconnection zine with my cousin. And there were several things that started with my grandmother. And here I am, my my grandmother now. Yeah, so I had gotten an agent while I was, I guess, still at UC Davis or shortly thereafter. And I had this agent through my time at IAIA. But like I mentioned, I had gotten feedback from publishers and I decided to switch what I was working on to be a collection of short stories instead of a novel. And I wrote most of these short stories while I was living in Pawhuska or Wachagali, my tribal district in the Osage Nation. And I was working at Daposka on Kodapi, which is our language-focused tribal school. And I was living alone. It was a lonely period. I had gotten out of a a long relationship in California and kind of just moved to Oklahoma for this job. And I was really focused on the language. And so these stories, I just kind of felt like I had nothing to lose. I just write whatever I felt, whatever I wanted to say. Not that I like didn't care, but I just kind of felt beat down. And so I, I just didn't feel like I had much to lose. And I just kind of wrote things that usually I might feel as like, a little too inarticulable or sensitive. So when I graduated, I was reworking the novel again, but with my agent, we had this conversation and she was like, well, would you just like to sell the stories instead? Should that be your first book? What do you want to be your first book? Like, yeah, okay, well, the stories feel alive for me. I'm thinking about these things. I'm I'm living some of these themes. So mm. let's go ahead and do that. And it sold right away. I had just two meetings, one with Naji Nieto of a, a press in New York, a new imprint, and then one with uh, Chris Heiser, who was the editor for this book. And he had considered making an offer on the novel prior to that. And I thought, you know, I want somebody who stands beside my work as a whole and is accepting toward my writing and what I want to do on my own terms. And so I felt like Chris uh, 
uh, had that. And also I think that my stories were like just a little bit maybe hateful seeming toward white men. And he was a white man. And I think my agent was encouraging me to, you know, talk to everybody, be friends with everybody, calm down. <laughs> so he was the best oh, yeah. choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the author's note to the collection, you set forth a really beautiful intention. Can you talk about the language of these stories and how it builds toward that intention? Right. I I really... Wakombra, I want it for them. Wajaji Nikoshi Wakombra. I want for Osage people to have a revitalized language. I, you know, I'm passionate about our language. There are other people. Uh, one of my teachers, Chris Cote, who's a, I would call a fluent speaker, although I guess technically by linguistic standards proficient, and and many others. Tali Redcorn is one who comes to mind. My teacher, Herman Mogri Lookout, that are really passionate about the language and they're, I'm in a community of learners, but as a whole, I don't think that Wajaji people feel empowered and resourced enough to revitalize our language, which is really hard. And that can create, you know, shame and feelings of, of failure as well as unrealistic expectations of, you know, people who have a lot of burdens on them. If, you know, they're a single mother or whatever it is that they're not, it's not realistic for them to kind of learn this second language as adults, um, even if they grew up in a household where they were hearing select Wajajaya phrases like one ombre QP, come to dinner table and eat, they're not speakers proficiently. And so I thought, well, what can I do that celebrates our language without overdoing it and creating too much pressure? And I've been working on a collection of poetry in Wajajaya, but I thought something a bit more meta that includes the language somewhat, but just tries to give a reflection of kind of what's going on with the language now, rather than like this picture of a revitalized language or this picture of fluency. So yeah, I just wanted to like not agitate things, but promote growth by, you know, when you build muscle, they say, you know, you break the muscle just a little is what Mm -hmm. causes it to grow. That's what I wanted to do with the language. And hopefully that the kids who study at that Dapuska Onkodapi school, you know, that when they're maybe like in eighth grade, ninth grade, and they have a high school open, that they would be able to use this book in curriculum and just to have something in our, in our language that is, is written and contemporary since we did decide as a tribe to make it written, which was recent in the 90s. I really hope that what I'm doing with the language here, you know, is is sensitive and compassionate. And also, I do want to be supportive to expand the ways we think about our language and that it's not just for ceremony and it's not just for language class. It can be in literature and you know, ever growing in our daily living lives conversation. And Chelsea, I love the fact that you say in your editor's notes that there's limited recognition of the indigenous characters that are part of Wajajaya. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you do use the Latinized spellings within the stories, but on the cover and in the chapter titles, you are using that orthography, which is actually a word that I'm just learning from you from this editor's note. (laughs) Very technical word. (laughs) Yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to include the orthography in some way in the collection? Or is that something that kind of came in later in the process? Well, I did want to include it, but I didn't think it would be possible. I I recently learned that uh, one Wajaji artist, Dr. Jessica Harjo, who has an artist brand called Weompe, has been creating different uh, stencils and and fonts. And these are being, they're in the process of being integrated so that we have more options. But I just, uh, I couldn't get the orthography to work in Word on my computer, although I could get it to work in Google Docs and on text. Oh. So I just didn't know how it would be possible to get my editor and the print maker to have the access when, you know, I would call like the Osage Nation IT or the language department and we would go through for an hour or two how to get it to work on Word. And I think somebody eventually told me it's not compatible with this certain update to Word. And so I thought it just wasn't possible. And when Chris Heiser, my editor, told me that the art director, Jay and Nicely, might be able to, you know, paint it, 
I was thrilled. And that actually came about because he was pushing me. Why are you not translating, you know, this conversation in Sekhombe? Why are you going to antagonize your readers like that? And I said, no, I have to keep this language without a translation, not only as a pedagogical device, but to encourage every reader to wonder to themselves that seed of wonder, well, what languages do I stand to inherit? What languages might I one day be learning or speaking or revitalizing? And he's like, okay, well, if that's how you feel, would you like to have the orthography? I'm like, yes, that would be wonderful. I love that. I love that he was in support of that. That's great. He was, yeah. Yeah. So moving into sort of the themes of the collection, because there's so many, but there's a couple that I picked up on that I would love to talk with you about. So one of them is dreams. So dreams play such a role in a lot of these stories. And I've always found it very difficult to write them, dreams Mm -hmm. and nightmares, Mm -hmm. because you have to capture them both as convincing and surreal at the same time. And so I just kind of want to pick your brain as a writer. What is the importance of dreams to your characters, first of all, and how do you approach writing them or getting them on the page? So the importance of dreams to the characters is I think that um, people who, for whatever reason, they're not able to choose explicit direct processing. Um, Maybe it's because of their family dynamic at the time or because of the constraints on their life that they're not necessarily intentionally journaling through everything. They're not necessarily in therapy or even if they are, they need more capacity to process things. And you know, that phrase of that concept of dream work. So I think it's the dream work is like a pragmatic subconscious response to pressure and stress. And I think for Indigenous people and and BIPOC people more, more broadly, that dreams can be like this key that I kind of think can help us live. Like they provide clues toward what we might do next. And like cultivating the muscle of remembering the dreams gives these characters the ability to kind of troubleshoot their own life. Mm. And then um, how to do it craft-wise. I remember uh, talking to Brandon Hobson, who's my uh, thesis mentor at IAIA. I told him, you know, I I know in his writing that he does some stuff with dreams and his his books are really, really um, sensory details, sensually oriented. And so I was asking him, like, what do you think? I really trust your opinion. How can I bring in dreams more? And he told me to read um, an Italo Calvino book, something about uh, cities in the title. I'll have to look up what it is. What I noticed there was that they were reductive stories. I don't love that word, but what I mean by it is highly compacted and with no extraneous detail. So I tried to take the dreams and make sure that, you know, they're related to the sequencing of the events of the story. But then besides that, then I just really boiled them down to some type of nugget of what the dream was about. And then it doesn't take up so much room because times that I tried to write, really write into the dream at length and make the dream the center of the story, I, I don't know if that's something I could pull off yet. So I didn't try to do that. And I might like to do that in further work for sure. But here I just used basically summary and I felt like I could get away with anything if I use highly compacted reductive summary. <laughs> I'll have to try that. Yeah. I feel like I remember, this is not, you know, literary, but I remember watching The Sopranos for some reason, and they always did dreams very well, I thought, where it was like meaningful to the story and yet really bizarre and strange. Um, Right. Yeah. I'm I'm with you on that. I'm remembering (laughs) that. So the other thing, the other theme that I noticed sort of recurring in the stories was about music. Mm-hmm. Um, you have characters playing Kendrick Lamar, Thurston Moore, um, Rolling <laughs> Stones, and the story My Kind of Woman has musicians as the main characters. Mm-hmm. And then the first story in the collection ends with the narrator saying, but one more song. So, <laughs> As someone who's interested in the influence of music, I'm so curious mm-hmm. how it inspires you. Oh, my word. Well, 
The short answer is that I used to be in bands and have bands and I would be the front woman and the keyboardist and the lyricist, if not the songwriter sometimes. And I, when I lost my last band in, I think, 2017, it was so like shattering to my coping mechanisms that I, you know, I would use that band practice time to, and we would write together live, you know, like in a rented space. And I lost that time of just kind of like, howling and singing and emoting I I just put it more into my writing that at least my characters would listen to music and be in bands so I do know that I was I was talking to um uh, Morgan Talty a debut author from Tin House uh, with the short story collection Night of the Living Res we were doing a conversation interview the other day and he was telling me that he felt like uh, music and pop culture references in native literature right now were like a recurring native motif. And he was referencing Tommy Orange's There, There. And mm-hmm. I was, maybe I'm influenced by that. You know, I think that when I'm trying to signal who characters are, I feel that music is so personal. You know, it's what you listen to when you're comfortable, when you're joyful. It's not necessarily something, like these characters aren't telling someone what they wish they listened to or what they would want to seem to be a person who's listening to. They're actually listening to this stuff. And I feel like it tells who they are. Mm -hmm. I think it's just fun to learn about new music from reading books. Talking about that, Donnie. (laughs) I will say that I I looked up that Thurston Moore song because I'm a Sonic Youth fan and I'm not too familiar with his solo work. Mm And so I did play that. I played that video. <laughs> what did you think? <laughs> that song. It was really interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that character, the one who selects the song, like a native designer, you know, like sort of like a niche, like pretty cool, like sad boy, hipster kind of yeah. thing. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah. okay, like I don't necessarily listen to this, but this character does. Right. <laughs> I love that. So let's jump into talking about some of the specific stories in the collection. The first one I'd like to talk about is Seikope. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling very f- fancy because I said it. I think I said it yeah, right. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Look Good at job, me Tisha. fishing yeah. for compliments. Um, <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> there's a bit of satire in this story. And it's a story mm-hmm. about the film industry. Mm-hmm. In the community where the story takes place, there, there's a movie that, quote, was telling one of our stories at the hand of a big name director with a cast of equally famous celebrities. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose this as the context and backdrop for the flirtation that unfolds between the two main characters. And why did you choose this as the story that kicks off the collection? Well, I'll start with the second question of why start off the whole collection this way. And I think it's because uh, tribes, individual tribes and indigenous groups sometimes suffer from a lack of awareness or even being known as existing because there's so many different tribes. And typically, in my experience, like people probably have heard of Cherokee and Navajo. And if people haven't heard of many more tribes than that, they definitely haven't heard of, of Osage or Wajaji people. But in, um, I think, 2016, David Grand wrote a book called Killers of the Flower Moon, dramatizing the rise of the FBI and how that related to the Osage Indian oil murders. And those were in the 1920s in Osage County. So this is like a double-edged sword because it's good for Osage people to become known about and for our existence to be, you know, not gaslighted, basically, that we don't know who you are, Mm -hmm. therefore you don't exist. Mm -hmm. But then at the other end of it, you know, of course, lots of people get activated by um, hearing traumatic things talked about that aren't talked about necessarily that often in our communities. And then on top of that, to have this told by, you know, Ishtahi, non-native person. So it's just really complicated. And and I think that Wajarji people have worked really hard, a lot of the time unpaid, sometimes paid, to promote the accuracy of our representation in Martin Scorsese's 
uh, Killers of the Flower Moon movie, which will be coming out. And, you know, I know many of our districts would, you know, have dinners to entertain the director and cast or, you know, one woman, Addie Roanhorse, she was a consultant working very hard, culturally consulting on the film. And many Osage people, I should say some, but in a way it feels like many, you know, starred in the film. So it's not like a completely black and white issue. And a lot of people will take a stance like for or against the film, like boycotting this or that, or else, you know, pro the film, because many times if they are cast in it or one of their family members are. And so I think that that leads into the question of why is it the backdrop for the flirtation is like one of the ways that in like an Osage flirtation, one of the parameters around that might be who's more Osage or who's the most Osage. And if that question is too, you know, bald and like rude and direct of me to state, I would say that I only do so, you know, in order to like introduce other topics around this us versus them mentality that can come even within, you know, the own tribe and is more individualistic than collective and thought. And so for these two characters, like to flirt by talking in Osage and to ask each other, oh, are you in the film? No, are you? It's just kind of a way of them establishing there's similarity toward each other and like, are they, what's their, what's that word? Positionality. Like they're mm-hmm. situated such that, you know, their relationship, it's not really a power imbalance of one of them is more Osage than the other, or one of them is a California Osage and the other Osage wishes they could get out of the res. It's like, no, these two, they have enough in common that they can just slide right into a relationship real quickly. Mm, I love that. Now, so many of these stories are contemporary, but my, I think this is my favorite in the collection. A Fresh Start is actually set in 1956. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I loved Florence. <laughs> Florence feels ah. like a woman on the edge of a breakdown, yes. like <laughs> trying to hold this family together. And I was so thrilled when later in the collection, Florence and her family appear again in a story that appears Uh, later in the book Mm -hmm. called Full Tilt. So I find Florence fascinating, even in the gap in the year that happens between the two stories. And I would love to hear, I just want to hear you talk about her (laughs) and how she came to you, how you developed her, how you see her. Basically, she was the character for that novel that I had mentioned. Oh. Um, And so she's kind of that eco person, the grandma person. And so growing up, I had this close relationship with my eco where she was very kind of like elegant and there was all this tea time and like velvet. (laughs) And I felt like she just represented this romantic kind of Venusian ideal to me of like reading etiquette books. And it was so funny because, you know, of course she had grown up going to the Paola Indian boarding school in Kansas. And so a lot of that was was from, you know, I guess like a, a violent backdrop. But for me, I just thought like, oh, wow, she's so fancy. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but my, my aunts and my dad and my uncles would tell me these horror stories about how she would beat them and that she was unstable, that she would have mental, multiple hospitalizations, uh, suicide attempts, and that she was totally unmoored woman. And, you know, there was this big division in my family of why would you even let your daughter have a relationship with this woman? And so when she died, it was 2015, and I was working in a French-inspired pastry shop in San Francisco in the Ferry Building, like shelling pastries with this wardrobe that was like, you have to wear pink flowery dresses, and you should not be seen in leggings. And it just reminded me of her. And I loved being there because it reminded me of my, my grandmother, but I was also my vision would kind of black out and I was like not really eating anything except for bits of macarons. And I was totally confused and very mentally unhealthy. And so I started writing um, about this Florence character um, and I was in Eun Lee's workshop and Eun Lee was so happy because I had been writing these kind of me, lightly veiled me almost having a breakdown in this pastry shop. And she confronted me. She's like, why are you writing this? 
I'm like, well, I miss my grandmother. And she's like, well, then just tell that story. And Mm. I was like, okay. Mm. And so I did. I started telling Florence's story and it was really just me questioning what it, what would it, what would cause a woman who's an orphan of the Osage oil murders to first of all, be able to live and survive a whole lifetime, but do so in a way where she's trying constantly to get a better life for herself and her children. She has internalized racism, or if it's in part, and if it's not only internalized racism, she's also uh, just assimilated to where she's lost a lot of her functional tribal collective community connection. And like, what would her life look like? How did it come to be that, you know, I was raised the way I was and that my dad is the person he is. And it was just me writing into those big familial um, confusions. So Florence, uh, yeah, I'm really thanking you for saying that you love her, you know, because that was what I heard from publishers was like, this character is just not likable. We don't Uh, like this character. We love a messy woman. We love a messy woman. (laughs) That's my favorite thing. (laughs) I mean, how could anyone read that character and not have empathy? Well, I I, I think that because, you know, we hear this from other writers in publishing, and I certainly heard it with the mother character in my story, Peach Cobbler, that, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a resistance to mothers who aren't motherly, who aren't 100% kind, who who can't deify. And that's, it's such a loss. And because I think many of us are hungry for literature that features those mothers, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Ah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so please tell me you're still working on this novel? Yeah, well, I mean, Chris Heiser, my editor, he does want me to work on it again. So maybe, but I worked on it for five years. And I know that we writers work on things for 10 years and longer. So I guess we'll see. (laughs) And in the meantime, we have these gorgeous stories, which we would also take more of. So (laughs) absolutely. So I, you know, uh, A Fresh Start was also my favorite story. Mm -hmm. And I, I do love Florence as well. I loved that the story was so cinematic mm. and um, and the dialogue in particular was incredibly evocative of that era that, you know, the 1950s, late 50s. And then it, and there's this really sharp dialogue. And through that dialogue, I got to know Florence and the other characters. And I'm wondering how you approach dialogue as it relates to characterization. Okay. I heard, you know, the initial teachings of dialogue can reveal something about the character. It can move the story forward. And then another one is people don't necessarily listen to each other when they talk to each other. Sometimes they're not really paying attention to each other. And so those are the things that I was, that I received as guidance. But for me particularly, I think that I was just interested in the way people talk like what they sound like and mm-hmm. the funny things that they say, the, the way that we as as people are, we're trying to not seduce each other with what we say, but be winning, get, get our way, get along, be agreeable, um, antagonize. And so I think that I'm thinking of the moment on the phone when Florence is talking to her brother and the way that she's just talking in these tiny little snippets, like, oh, I can't even remember exactly some of the dialogue, but I remember that just like conveying the mood, the moment through kind of like the art of dialogue, it's a way of presentation. It's a way of expressing the self. And I also love the dialogue tag so much because I can create an image through what someone's doing and then what they paired with their words, almost like it was like Mm -hmm. an artistic offering. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're setting down the gold lame pumps and saying like, would you like pie? And it's just (laughs) like an aesthetic (laughs) offering. Yes. So let's talk about Buy Alcatraz. This one takes place at a Friendsgiving hang where the narrator unexpectedly finds allies among a group of black friends and they watch Blade Runner together. Mm -hmm. And what inspired this story and why Blade Runner as the movie? I don't know. Blade Runner just seems like it's this 
cult movie that is about cool misfits and people who, I mean, it's set in a future world. Mm -hmm. um, And I never understood the movie. And I've watched it a few times myself and I still don't fully understand it. And so I think that to me, it just represents that time that at least I had in college where like in the way in kind of the culture in which I grew up, it was almost like it felt like a sin to be cool. And so watching cool movies and not understanding them was like a lot of what I did in college. And so (laughs) now, like, I feel like most of those movies that I would have seen at that time, like, yeah, I get it. I know what's going on. Amelie, Fight Club, like with Blade Runner. I'm just like, what? (laughs) So. I've never seen it, but you've got me curious. Neither have I. I mean, (laughs) I don't even know if I can recommend it. It's that there's this one woman in it who starts it off and she's wearing like this raccoon face paint all over her. And it's just very weird. It's it's very aesthetic. So it was all about Mm. the aesthetics and Mm -hmm. an aesthetic. The story itself, I wanted to write something that was set in San Francisco over Thanksgiving break because I wanted to bring in Alcatraz somehow. And I just thought about how Native people when outside of community can just be really can be lonely and like not really fit in with anybody exactly. The story actually like where it actually come from was an exercise Tommy Orange had given um, when I was at IAIA and he was he had become faculty there. And he said, I want you to write a door into a story, something that you'll polish that's an opening for you. So write about something that like you've never written about that you really think would be an accessible entry point for a lot of people. And I just started writing about like various exes throughout my whole life from the time of like, I'm talking about like nine-year-old boyfriend exes. There was this one guy, this character, Darren with floppy hair. And I just had this idea of the guy who kind of doesn't get it, but is sweet in a way. And just like what happens when you're trying to get along with somebody who doesn't really get you and isn't really compatible with your background. And so the black friends are like, kind of like she realizes like, oh, maybe I would be better off by like spending more time with people who also struggle with being full members of this American community. I have more in common with maybe people that I wasn't trying to seek out. And maybe it would be better for me to just like stop trying to pursue Darren and Mm. open it up to like those who might have some more commonalities. Um, super drunk. So that one starts off, there's an epigraph from Luster by Raven Leilani, mm, which I yes. feel like is becoming a kind of a contemporary classic. Of sorts. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and yeah. then there's a later story that has a quote from Louise Erdrich. And mm-hmm. it just had me curious about the other contemporary writers that you feel your work or your voice are in conversation with. I think Elaine Castillo from America is Not the Heart. I feel like she, well, she uses Tagalog and Ilocano. So she's got language in there. And I think that both of your books, for sure, because when I look at, you know, Donnie, the way that you use music and what I would say is like the journalistic aspect where is this virtuosic challenging toward what is real and what's fiction. I find like that's something that that I really believe in is hybridity or like the inherent Mm -hmm. suspicion of genre Mm. and then yeah Adisha for your character is like women who totally explode what a culture is supposed to be seen as and what it's both supposed to be both from the inside and outside of this idea of like church women are supposed to be a certain way but actually you know they're queer or you know they're have like very very deep complex inner lives that are beyond anything that the Bible can really help you with. And so um, a friend wow. of mine, yeah, she was talking Thank about you. it as like, <laughs> I oh, know. I'm like, well, I did that. Oh my God. I was not, no, I was not <laughs> expecting that. My head has grown seven times. It's normal size right well, now. Well, now it's the right size. 
but my my cousin told me that she thought that it was like she said your writing style is like it's the seedy underbelly of native women i was like oh okay she's like or like your relationship toward your characters is like a toward your readers is like a drag queen where you like seduce them but you also roast them and you're like inviting but also difficult and i was like oh wow i don't even know if i can take that and accept that compliment but i would like you know aspire to it that's and amazing so, yeah. yeah just like anybody who's totally trying to i guess go all the way or really push something past its usual boundaries and so who i've been reading lately that fits that Bri, i'm going to open my kindle really fast <laughs> so i can because i can be a bit of a literary slut where i read everybody and like a lot of things you are highly yeah. quotable can i just say you're highly quotable and like no. i can't wait for the sound bites from this episode. oh my gosh <laughs> okay. amazing i'm just going to tell you a few of the ones that i've I, I can't analyze it further than to tell you that I read it and adored it and it was inspiring to me and generative. So Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa yes, Thompson. Yes, yes. Snaps, favorite, snaps, yes. favorite. Yes. So good. <laughs> Milk Blood Heat by Don Teal. Yeah, our homegirl. That's our girl. Yes. <laughs> so great. I'm, I'm just a fan. <laughs> um, let's see who else. I have been enjoying Nobody's Magic by Destiny. Destiny. Yes. Yeah. That is incredible. And she was a poetry teacher at Tin House, a workshop I took. And th- what I just taught to my students this whole semester and what we went over the whole time was Men We Reaped by Jasmine mm, Ward. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was so good. I, I'm really, I like, here's what Jasmine Ward has me on right now is like, you know, I have this ambition, like many writers, to one day, despite everything, do the Stegner Fellowship, you know? Yeah. And, like, <laughs> I try to analyze, like, who has done that? And, like, if I could do the guesswork of what book they published after, like, what did their proposal really entail? And I feel like it's that there's a project proposed that takes everything you have and emotionally and intellectually with research and you know you you have to be up to that work that something that matters to you so much Mm -hmm. that you would give everything to it and so I want to find what that project would be for me oh that's intimidating it is but it's at least food for thought but we don't have to answer these questions this year or even in the next five years they're just (laughs) there like on the back burner yeah (laughs) So let's talk about what's ah. Oh, yes. This story, as with some of your others, features an intergenerational cast of characters. And it on, I think it's on two pages, there's an image that's composed of X's and I's. And the images, this image represents a painting that the main character owns. And the X's and I's represent the generations that have come. She's The character says, you know, these mm-hmm. are the generations that have come before me. And so I'm curious about the genesis for this story. And I'm also interested in the role that ancestors and elders play in your storytelling. And you've talked about your grandmother, for example, but mm-hmm. can you speak to that a, a bit more broadly? So the ancestors, when I started learning Wajajaya more intensively, uh, which happened starting in 2016 when this uh, writer and translator, Nimu Pu, writer and translator, Nez, Inez Hernandez Avila, challenged a group of me and other Native students in one of her workshops at UC Davis. She said, I have a message for y'all from the writers in Chiapas in the state of Oaxaca in Mexico. Why are you not writing in your languages? And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. And it really made me think. And, you know, my my ego passed away shortly thereafter. And when I started learning, and especially as I started learning more intensively, I started having dreams of my ancestors, like telling me what to do. And they would tell me these crazy things that I did not want to do. And I was like, oh my gosh. And <laughs> so... I just started thinking about them a lot more, like individual ones of them, all trying to be inclusive of them. Who is everybody? Who are the groups of people? Do they get along? Like, what's my responsibility? Like, 
Where am I making reparations toward my an- toward my ancestors' actions? Where am I building on their work? Where am I elevating them? And it was just something that I think that I experienced sort of like a, like a loss of faith because when that band broke up, they were all pastors or youth pastors or music pastors. They were all Christians and they had told me, you know, like, you know, you don't need to be writing in Wajrajaya. Like they weren't telling me that's pagan exactly, but I had heard that before a lot. And so I just kind of felt like I couldn't, and I have an essay more in depth about this coming out in Lit Hub, but I just had a worldview like earthquake moment. And so the ancestors were the people that imaginatively, subconsciously, and spiritually that I was thinking about uh, to get me through that. And so that's how I ancestors came into these stories so much. And then what's, uh, I was thinking about um, fashion, really, and how there's not like a native fashion week in the United States, even though, you know, this is native land and native people, like at this year's recent Met Gala, then the first Monday in May, you know, we have thankfully Kwana Chasing Horse and there are indigenous designers that are getting more notoriety like Jay Okuma and Orlando Degay and Lauren Goodday and many others, but there's so many and there's so little recognition that usually when there's native inclusion in an event like Karina Emrich with Emmy Studios um, at the at the fashion event back in the first part of the Met Gala in September of last year, it's usually tokenized. There's one native included. And it makes me so mad. And so that's why I wanted to write this story was just to at least try my hand at honoring like the self-representation that I do see among native designers and just show a little bit of what that scene is because I usually participate in the fashion show at um, Santa Fe during Indian market in August. This year is the 100th anniversary of Swaye. And I also do modeling mainly just for native brands. And the reason is, is I just want to do what I can to promote native brands with excellence and to make them and us more visible. So that was where the story came from, was just like my itching desire to do Mm -hmm. something, even though it's not like I'm at the center of the fashion industry or anything like that, you know? And like, that's not what I need to be, but I do want to contribute in whatever way I can. And additionally, this idea of the toxic relationship and Mm -hmm. what it costs to grow out of that, um, because that's such a common thing for Native women I don't know if I've unfortunately memorized the statistics about like how much more likely, you know, they are like like black women to experience domestic violence and mm-hmm. to experience um to just be dealing with intergenerational trauma issues around um abuse and so yeah, like that one I heard this concept of a hyperdrive, which is like mm. a story where you write or you read it to like enact a change. And so I wanted to write a story that could do that, that like if a person kind of in an abusive relationship read it, that it might be so charged that it might push them to do something like, you know, set a boundary, like this guy trying to break in. And obviously, I mean, they love each other, but his behavior is endangering him and her. And if she stays with him, she's Mm -hmm. enabling him. And so the only way that the characters can grow is through separating. And that separation causes extraordinary, almost terror. And this question of like, is healing from toxicity even worth it? Or do you just let your children do that? Because it's too much on these two people to try to change. And we hear so much these days about how you need, there's this moral onus to become less toxic and become mm-hmm. a better woman, a stronger woman. But I was reading um, You Don't Know Us Negroes by mm-hmm. Zora Neale Hurston. And I was reading something in there about how she had, you know, there's a there's a shadow side to like strong, strong feminism to where it can be so hard on you, at, on, on me or as one as the woman to where you it's so much harder on you to try to forge new pathways of independence and healing that women end up leading that. You know, I think of that song on the new Kendrick Lamar album where the couple's fighting with each other. We cry together. And it's like, 
I don't know. I just, I feel like this is a big issue in Mm -hmm. communities of color for like toxic and dysfunctional relationships. And it ends up getting put in this like castigating each other thing. Whereas I'm interested in transformative justice, where Mm -hmm. how can you do something that helps both of you, even if it sucks in the time being, you know, like it's intentional in that story that they, their friend urges her, don't call the police, you know, like they won't, they won't call the police on him. He's not going to die. Like it's okay. And Mm -hmm. it's, it just sucks for everybody, but they're trying their best. And it's like a moment of, I guess, real growth. Absolutely. That story and, and, you know, so many of the others have just these really compelling women characters. And and I'm not going to take us on a tangent, but I feel like you started alluding to this, I think, in, mm-hmm. in your response just now, that the burden of healing mm-hmm. and it, is, it falls disproportionately on the women of color yeah. in, in, in mm-hmm. these communities and in these relationships. And um, and so among all of your, your you know, really compelling characters, um, you know, we talk about how we love Florence. Do you have a favorite character from the collection? My favorite character is in Brother. Um, she's the character who has grown up on the reservation and is encountering the California Osages. Mm. And um, her name changed a few times, so I need to (laughs) remind myself what it is. But I I love her because she's the one who's furthest from my experience. And so I just had a lot of compassion and research in writing her um, because I didn't grow up on a reservation. And I just feel like she's so generous toward the reconnecting Wajaje at her dances. And I just love her complexity because she's like having a crush on this California Osage guy at Ari Lanshka ceremonial dances. And she kind of knows that she's like not supposed to have a crush on him because he's like the California Osages, the infamous California Osages who like they don't know shit. And (laughs) I just... I love her vulnerability. Like she's trying to be keep them at arm's length, but mm-hmm. at the same time, she like wants to help them. And I just feel like it speaks to the um, like even though we have these different tribal politics and things that we're working through, like Osage people are really loving and kind, and like they'll do anything for you as long as you know you feel like you have each other's back and nobody's you know threatening you or. Or trying to disrespect you, mm-hmm. and so I just like her. Um, I like her incredible generosity. So this is Mina that you're talking about. Yeah, that's okay. right. I yeah, that also her. means um, first daughter mm. in, in Osage. Ah. It kind of gets used as like a nickname. So our time together is in like hyperdrive. I cannot believe. <laughs> um, but we did have one last question, um, and it's it's just so wonderful and inspiring that you have this collection out. And so for the writers in our audience, you know, um, leave us with a bit of inspiration. Tell us the story of your first ever short fiction publication. Anything to remember the year, the story, the acceptance letter, any of it. So in the onomatopoeias for Wrangell St. Elias, um, from noted in my bio that you also graciously read, I had um, this one poem. It was a pantoum. It was written in response to sounds gathered from Wrangell St. Elias National Park by a sound artist named Eric DeLuca. And we were collaborating as like an undergrad grad pair. And so I looked up, uh, you know, whose land that was, and it was Atna and Athabascan land. And I included like words from those languages. And we made like a script uh, of different readers to read kind of like an animate perspective of the land. And it was published in UVA's, like a student zine, you know, like only I think 500 copies made and hand distributed. And the launch party was at this cool coffee shop. And it was just one of those like moments of like, oh, wow, these are the cool kids. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, I remember it had kind of a cardboard, you know, it reminded me of a brown paper package wrapped up in string kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, this is a zine. What's a zine? (laughs) Yeah, it was just so exciting. And I kept it framed. But yeah, I think that for the writers out there who are listening, that publishing anywhere that inspires you, however small, is like a really great way to build up your stamina in writing. Because at least for me, I know that 
any type of affirmation that's community-minded that I do receive kind of puts some fuel in my engine. So I would say, you know, do submit to those blogs and zines and even start a zine yourself if you feel so inspired and just build up to those larger publications because it takes, you know, so much time in this industry to uh, to get to that place of where, you know, you can kind of shout it out loud and people will hear you. So don't, you know, hesitate to kind of fuel your own engine with wherever you can find that community to share your work. I love that. Chelsea T. Hicks, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, for this beautiful collection. Definitely, I agree with Kali. It is unlike anything I've read mm. before. So thank mm. you for that. Thank you, Donnie. And thank you, Disha. This has been a true delight to talk about these things with you. And thanks to our audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want more, become an URSA member by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help us produce our original stories and you'll support our work on this podcast as we turn you on to our favorite writers and short stories. You can support this podcast by leaving a review and a comment in Apple Podcasts. Talk to you next time.